good morning. Good morning. You guys may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to go to Colossians chapter 2 with me this morning. Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to preach for like an hour and 40 minutes, so that's why we're only singing one song uh, this morning. I'm just kidding. Uh, matter of fact, I need to make special note of where the time is at. It is 11.05 so that I don't go till 12.30. Um, my brain is trained to go to about that time, so um, we're going to try and not do that. But let's start at Colossians chapter 2, and we are going to read verses 16 through 19. Paul says this, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. There are a sha- these, sorry, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up with, without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Um, Let's pray. Father, uh, I just ask you, beg you this morning, um, that you illumine the meaning of this text to our minds as we discuss it this morning, as we teach it, and as I seek to preach it. Your word and proclaim your word. And Father, I just ask for your a special amount of grace this morning um, for, for many different reasons. Uh, but Father, um, I just pray that as we look at your words, that we recognize that every last dot, every last tittle, as is referred to in the Hebrew language, that every last little mark is your word. It's there for a reason, and it means something, and it's part of your revelation of yourself to us. So, Father, I just pray that you would bless us this morning as we seek to hear your word and know you better. And, Father, it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, All right, so, uh, one song and we're off and running. Um, Let me say this from the very beginning. Uh, This is one of the hardest texts I think I have ever tried to teach. Um, you're, you're, think, you're, you're looking at it going, well, it makes pretty good sense. Like, yeah, like it makes sense. But making sense out of a text and then trying to help a group of people understand and apply that text is a lot, is a different story. Um, and so I'm just going to confess to you guys, I really struggled this week um, with this text. Um, again, part of it is in understanding because I... Just a, a, a quick reading of that, I don't think really, I, th- I think you miss what Paul's doing here, just, a, just kind of a, uh, an overview reading of it. Um, so it's a little difficult there, but it's also a little difficult trying to figure out how does this apply to us. Like, this is some weird language, and it was written 2,000 years ago, and, and you know, I, I know people's claim when it comes to God's Word is that, well, the whole thing is really old, and it doesn't have any relevance for us today, and of course, we would disagree with that largely, but I'm going at this text going, 
this text was written 2,000 years ago, and it's really hard to understand and figure out the relevance of it for us today. Um, so let me say along with that, that this is kind of one of the nice things of doing verse-by-verse preaching, expository preaching, is because it forces me to preach on something that I wouldn't typically preach on and then just have to trust the Holy Spirit that He's going to use it in some crazy way that I probably would, I, I probably would not have ever chosen to preach on this verse, I'll just to be honest with you, given, uh, given my own um, decision-making. But since we decided to, to preach through this text, here we are at verse 16, and Paul's talking about not letting people judge you because of their insistence on Old Testament laws. Now, that's interesting because a lot of us are not being judged because we are not um, upholding dietary laws of the Old Testament. You know, like the Old Testament, not allowed to eat pork. Well, when was the last time you got in trouble by someone around you for eating pork? Anybody? Maybe because it's unhealthy. But not because of any kind of, well, it's not unhealthy. Maybe the fatty stuff is unhealthy. Pulled pork is delicious because it's fatty. Uh, But it's not because of some spiritual reason that someone around you is disqualifying you or judging you because you're eating that pork or because you're working on the Sabbath or such like that. So um, anyways, let me start off with this. Let me give you a kind of the big picture and then, want to uh, hopefully with the hey, the very much the aid of the Holy Spirit, we're going to work through this text this morning. So, first of all, big picture, what's going on? First of all, Paul, among many things, the overall picture that Paul's done so far is he's painted for us this wonderful picture of Jesus Christ. Like he has really painted this glorious picture of Christ, and basically says it's all about Christ and Christ or the fullness of God is in Christ. So, wait a second, I lost my headphone. Where did my headphone go? You say, why do you need your headphone? I need my headphone because when I go to sing later, I won't be able to hear myself. (laughs) I'm just all tangled up. I'll get it later. Okay. Um, So, this picture, Paul is saying, is, is it's all about the fullness of Christ and that the fullness of God is in Christ. And um, and basically what happens then is Paul tells them to beware of this deception. He says to beware of deception. And then what happens is Paul goes on to say, what is it that might be deceiving you? What is the risk of this deception? What is it that is could happen that could deceive you? Because remember... And I was having a conversation with someone the other day. We were talking about deception and and the idea of when do you know that you're being deceived? Anybody know? When someone tells you or something enlightens you. I mean, it's, it's like being asleep. You don't really know you're asleep until you wake up. And it takes someone to wake you up. And so what Paul, I think, is doing is he's here is more giving them a warning. I think there's some deception going on, but I don't think there's a prevalent, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I don't think there's a prevalent um, 
major heresy going on in Colossians, but there is this at least beginning to come, and Paul sees the necessity to warn them of this deception. So moving on, so basically what he tells them is that this deception is anything that's going to take you away from Christ. And so this is what we're going to talk about today, things that could take the Colossians away from Christ. Now, let me warn you again from the very beginning. Uh, it's going to be a challenge to see some of the relevance for us today. So just hang with me. And I think if we look at the big picture, the big picture helps us to see the relevance and not necessarily the details. Does that make sense? But the details help us to see the big picture. So that's why we got to look at the details to see the big picture, and then we'll see the relevance, I believe, through the big picture. So, first point that we need to understand from this text is that do not even consider the judgment of others. Do not even consider the judgment of others. Now, before we rock and roll with this, I I have to say, there's going to be a a lot of qualifications to that phrase. And it's very important that we catch the qualifications of this phrase, basically, so that we... We need to understand what Paul says by let no one pass judgment on you. Because in our society, it's one of my pet peeves today, uh, it just bothers me, is we, our culture completely misunderstands the phrase, do not judge me. Terribly pulled out of context, misused, abused by Christians, non-Christians alike. And so that's not what Paul is saying here. He's got a very specific context with a very specific point in mind when he says in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Basically, what happens is the Colossian believers are warned of the possibility or of this even currently happening in part of people judging them. (coughs) But here's the deal. Paul does not mean... Do not allow anyone to judge you. All right, so Paul, in in, in the sense, he's not saying take some action to prevent anyone who might judge you from, in fact, doing so. So Paul's not saying to us, take some action so that no one can judge you. And he's not telling, basically, here's the deal, this is not a second person imperative. And, and it's, I think it's translated like that. It feels like a second person imperative. But instead, the language is it's a third person imperative. So it's, a, it's third person telling them to do something. Basically indicating that a third party, the third person, ought not to do this. Does that make sense? So he's not saying, don't let them judge. Or not, you don't judge. But he's saying, they ought not to judge you. Is the feel that's going on in this text. And it's really kind of challenging to, to see that. So basically what I understand Paul to be saying here is that you who are reading this letter, so the Colossians, don't give any legitimacy to anyone who passes this kind of judgment on you. This is very crucial to understanding this text. And I want to make sure we get this from the very beginning. And Paul is not saying, don't do anything that doesn't allow them to judge. Don't. You, what he's saying is, you readers, you Colossians, because that's his audience, do not give legitimacy. Do not even consider 
the judgments of those people. And it's very specific who the judgment is, what the judgment's about, and who it's coming from. Okay, so that's going to help us. But first of all, we have to understand that this is what Paul is telling them. Basically, he's saying you are to not be disturbed by such a thing. As who passes such judgments ought not to do so. They are the ones that are in the wrong. The ones passing the judgment are in the wrong. Consider, though, with me the experience of being judged by others. I think this is a big deal um, for those who consider what others think a very valuable thing. I mean, I admit, I consider what others think a very valuable thing. And our culture really lives on this idea of what other people think is a very valuable thing. And I'm not saying that it's not valuable, okay? But this just kind of setting the context for us here. Uh, But this is often, though, I think a source of a problem in Christian life and ministry today. Uh, You see in Galatians, where Paul basically speaks against seeking the approval of man. Uh, Seeking God's approval and seeking man's approval is mutually exclusive. That we seek God's approval and God's approval only. That's so what's going on here, as he's saying, do not, basically, you, you should have no concern with their judgment because you're not seeking their approval. It doesn't matter what they're judging you on. Um, but for us today, there's a general danger in allowing the judgments of other people to push us around and to unsettle us. Like, to be the shaping force of our life or to be the motivation behind our decisions and behaviors. Like we have to be careful that what is motivating us, what is shaping us is the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit can use other people. Okay, So I said there's going to be lots of qualifications to this judgment. But, but Paul is saying that our motivation ultimately comes from the Holy Spirit and our shaping of our lives comes from the Holy Spirit, not from the judgment ultimately of others. You know, others shouldn't dictate how hard we work or what we choose to work hard at in life. The Holy Spirit dictates that for us. Now again, they, the Holy Spirit can use other people to give us information, but then we have to understand on the receiving side of that where that's coming from. And that has a lot to do with the judgment that Paul is having issue with here because the kind of judgment in view is the kind of judgment that's not coming from God. It's not coming from His Word, and it's not coming from the Holy Spirit. So there's an issue here with what kind of judgment. So next point, the kind of judgment in mind involves legalism. This is what Paul is talking about, and then we'll try and draw some application from there. (coughs) Excuse me. The kind of judgment in, in mind involves legalism. 2.16 Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Paul's warning here is incredibly specific. The kind of judgment in view, again, is incredibly specific. And the warning sounds irrelevant to us today. 
Like who of us are concerned about food, drink, regarding festivals of new moon and Sabbath? And, and this is what I'm referring to, like when I, when I opened up at the beginning of the sermon going, oh my goodness, like what are we going to talk about? Like none of us, what's the application for us today? <laughs> this is weird, all right? Weird, all right? It's weird. Got to put the H in there, right? All right. It says, you and questions of food and drink with regard to festival and new moons. Oh, what are we going to talk about? All right. <coughs> Excuse me. The words refer or allude to, obviously, a range of requirements in the Old Testament law. Uh, various food laws in the book of Leviticus. You can look at Leviticus chapter 11 when you have some time. Specified kinds of food that may be eaten. Specified, specified kinds of foods that should not be eaten. Uh, there were annual festivals, weekly Sabbaths. Um, I'll just give you a few texts that you can also look up. First Chronicles chapter 23, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 2, chapter 8, verse 31. I'm tra- sorry, first, chapter 2, chapter 8, chapter 31, Nehemiah chapter 10. Take a look at those. You'll see what Paul's referring to here at these Sabbaths and festivals and and so on and so forth. But uh, here's what's interesting is that the Old Testament, though there's not really, or there, there is no prohibitions of drinks in the Old Testament. But Paul here in this refers to drinks. Um, the only thing we see kind of resembling this in the Old Testament would be like where Daniel, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, where he talks about the, uh, that he was going to avoid the wine that the king drank. Um, you can look at some other examples, Leviticus chapter 10, chapter 11, Numbers chapter 6. So basically, though, what Paul is saying here is do not let anyone pass judgment on you for not keeping the Old Testament dietary laws or for not observing the Old Testament calendar. That's the big picture. What Paul is saying, do not let them judge you pertaining to these issues and that is you not keeping the Old Testament law uh, as far as dietary laws and the Old Testament calendar. So we have to keep this in mind. If we're going to understand what Paul's saying by do not judge, we have to keep understand that he's saying do not let those judge you in these reasons. So already this separates us out from the, well, do not judge me. Right? So this Paul is not referring to when Jesus says to take the log out of your own eye. And it's interesting because people like to stop at the, you know, do not judge. And, and they forget that Jesus goes on to say to remove the log in order that you may help a brother. That order that to help them with the speck that's in their eye. I mean, it's, it's, it's the language going on there. So we're already, we're not in that category. And I really want to make sure I just pound that into your head that we're not in that category of judging. This is a very specific situation for us to grasp a hold of. And the problem, though, again for us today is to see, to see what kind of relevance there is. Um, I already said, I, I got ahead of myself, but none of us are, you know, have been judged lately for eating pork, you know? At least not that I know of. Um, you know, I've enjoyed City Barbecue two or three times in the past month, I think. Uh, and I'm not, like, I don't know. I, I, you know. I'll just leave it at that. Like, none of us have, uh, for the most part, at least that I know of, have been judged for eating pork. Uh, but let me encourage us again as we work through this text that we've got to be patient when it comes to God's Word. 
and understanding God's word and seeing what is it that he is trying to communicate to us. And I think in order for us to understand the relevance of this passage for today, we must go back to Colossae and try to appreciate why Paul would follow up his warning in 2.8 with this warning. Look at that warning in 2.8. says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then why would he then, less than eight verses later, say, Therefore do not let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. This is the beauty of understanding the context and how important the context is for God's word. Because if you just pull this passage out and go, therefore, let, no, let, do not let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, it would be really hard to understand this passage, particularly to understand it rightly. So, with that in mind, let's move forward. Was question, was there someone or some group of people, presumably, Jewish Christians who were zealous to force the Gentile believers to keep the law of Moses. You think that that's what's going on? I think that's what's going on. I think, I think it's clear that there's some sort of Jewish influence going on that is trying to force the Gentiles into keeping the Old Testament law. This is interesting because we, we, we like to kind of banner the phrase it's jesus plus nothing and and there's lots of support i think throughout scripture but i think this we get into the context this is one of those contexts that supports it's jesus plus nothing i think what's going on is the jews are trying to impose something probably christian jews are still trying to hold on to old testament law and they want the gentiles to, to, to uphold that. Now, let me say this before we, get, uh, before we continue. Um, let's not beat up on the Jews too bad, okay? In this, I mean, understand how foreign of a concept this is to them. Their whole lives, their whole grandparents' lives, great-grandparents' lives, thousands of years, and they've been following the Old Testament, and now all of a sudden, it's Jesus plus nothing. Like it's Jesus and nothing. So, yes, they're wrong. Yes, they need to be held accountable. Yes, they need to be corrected. But we don't want to beat up on them because this is what they, they were fighting, have been fighting for just God and, and, and this law. So, let's keep that in mind. But <coughs> we know for sure that the same situation of the Jewish people trying to work these Old Testament things, we know this happened in Galatia. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, Galatians chapter 6, verse 12, you can look at those later, Acts chapter 15 and, uh, and Philippians. So we know in three different places the same thing happened where Paul is addressing the Jewish people of, God, no, 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 it's not Jesus plus this stuff, it's Jesus alone. And you people in Galatia, beware. You people in Philippi, beware. And so what happened is here in, Coloss- in the Colossae, Paul is warning them about deception. And what's he warning them about deception? That deception is anything that takes you away from who? Let me hear you. Christ, Jesus. Anything that takes you away from Christ. What does the law in the way that they're using it doing? 
It's taking them away from Christ. Because now no longer am I alone in Christ solely, but it's now Christ plus dietary laws. Christ plus the Old Testament calendar of events. So I think understanding that Paul in this context is thrilled with where the Colossian believers are at. He says this, I thank God for what's going on in the city of Colossae. Remember that from the back of the first chapter? And I think Paul recognized this deception from these types of people was a huge threat, if not maybe the biggest threat. And so he takes the time to warn them of this threat. Um, Again, I think there's a good chance that a lot of this is already going on in the city of Colossae. Like, they are already beginning to struggle with this. Um, I just don't see it. Like, Paul's not calling out specific people. He's not calling out specific situations. He is still very broad in his warnings here. Although it's specified about something specific like dietary laws and stuff, but he's, he's, not dig, he's not dug in and calling people out yet. Like there's this person among you that is, that is you know, doing this, but he's, he's staying still a little more general. So Paul, again, I, I think what Paul's going is he's going after this either beginning to be present or is a warning of something that is most likely going to happen because... Paul is wise because Paul's seen it in Galatia, because Paul is enlightened by the Holy Spirit, of course, in writing this in, in the light, enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. So even today, Christians have to beware, we have to beware of any suggestion that our faith must be expressed in things like abstaining from certain foods, foods and observing certain days. Um, like, you're going, well, that's... That's weird, like observing certain days. Let me just practically put this like in our picture. Like, uh, we don't struggle with this as much here, but within the greater church landscape, you know, uh, real churches have a service on Sunday morning and on Sunday night. That's, that's what real Christians do. I don't know if you all knew that or not, but we're not, we're not on board with that one. We're, we're still struggling here okay uh and wednesday night sorry wednesday night prayer meeting right we're gonna have a wednesday night prayer meeting i'm not putting down a prayer meeting but we're not a real church right uh, one maybe even a little more close to home is you're not a church until you have a sunday morning worship service with a stage and speakers um and comfy seats um so we just became a real church, okay? Just became a real church. You could have brought your pads a long time ago. I'm just telling you, just saying. Uh, and you, I know we're laughing about this, but this is real. I was in a church planting uh, class, like a church planting 101, and the guy says, we will not begin your funding as a church planter until you're having a weekend worship service. And I just was flabbergasted. I'm like... Do you know anything about Paul? Like, just wondering. Uh, because, uh, and, and of course now I'm going through this text and I'm going, you know, I don't know that I would have brought it up publicly in the class because I just don't like being that guy. 
Uh, I make fun of that guy who, who is the one to ask 500 questions. And, and it's like, the, the rest of us don't care. Talk to him after class. I'm, but, I, you know, I would have been interested to know what is his biblical support for we're not going to help you until you're having a Sunday morning worship service, that, as if that constitutes a church. Um, and I think it falls into this category. And we, as, you know, as a church planter, I have to, if I'm going to abide by what Paul's saying here, is to not let them judge me. They're the ones that's in the wrong, if they're going to consider us not a church until we do that. Let me give you another very, very practical example. I, I'm going to rant here for just a second, but... Um, we have a, in Southern Baptist culture, uh, they don't, they like to use the term mission. So like a church, according to their standards, is not a church until certain things are reached. And until that point, you're called a mission. One of those is a church not receiving any kind of financial support from outside of the church. And, and my question then is, where do you put the category of tent makers? Like pastors who work bivocationally. So are they not a church and they're a mission until now the church is somehow funding them f- and paying their salary? So just a mission? Or another one of their, quote, standards is, you know, are you constituted? So... If you're a constituted church, where does it say in God's Word that the church has to be constituted to, in order to be a church? Nowhere. Now, I do think there's biblical requirements for being a church, but those certainly are not it. Requirements, I believe scripturally, like we've committed to be the church, whether, verb, whether explicitly or implicitly, we've committed to be the local church, whoever, wherever, that might be. It doesn't have to be believers, baptized believers. Uh, I believe Scripture sets the precedent for us. And uh, we do have to practice the church ordinances. And um, uh, we need leadership. You know, I, I believe Paul points elders at these local churches. So this, but it doesn't include these other man-made rules. I think what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that the Old Testament laws are man-made. But he's saying, that's not what saves us. Right? We're not found in that anymore. We are to be found in Christ. So my point in all of that is to say that we have these same struggles today. Uh, we can be deceived for things like, well, real Christians only listen, listen to Christian radio. How about that? Oh, Moses. <laughs> like... Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, someone said, you know, I was listening to Christian radio. I'm going to look right at him. Because I was listening to Caleb the other day. And dude, like, they played three of our songs in a row. And he thought that was funny because I don't ever listen to Caleb. And you make fun of Caleb. And, and uh, now I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying Caleb and whatever. So, like, <laughs> he's like, you know, he's saying, and I'm like going, oh, wow, we've got to change something. <laughs> There's just something wrong with that picture. Uh, so I guess I'm not a real Christian because you know, I don't like listening particularly to Christian radio. Uh, I like my iPod. Uh, and if you listen to Christian radio, like, I guess you're just one, close, one foot closer to the throne than me. 
Um, I'm just kidding. If you look, listen to Caleb, all right? It's positive and encouraging. All right. All right. Real Christians do not drink alcohol. How about that one? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to stop on that one. We'll just move forward. Uh, real Christians go to church every time the doors are open. Um, that's a lot of churching, man, right? I'm going to see you all every Tuesday night. Everyone. The only one doing that right now is Rusty. So uh, he's good. The rest of us are sinning, <laughs> including me. <coughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we can have fun. Uh, you know, other denominations will push this idea of um, your salvation is evidenced by speaking in tongues. I think that's a very good modern day example. Um, that you're not really saved until you have or can, but at least have, as in one incident, or it can continue, one or the other, uh, speak in tongues. Um, that means I'm not saved, right? According to that, I'm, I'm not a follower of Christ. Um, another one, baptism. That's a ritual or a rite or, or ceremony, if you will, uh, that some tag to Jesus. That's Jesus plus this. Um, so I, th- I think these are good examples. And so here's a question. Why? Why do we not do these things? Why do we not let those passing judgment on us for those things? Why? Why do we not? Well, you might say, well, because there's freedom. Like, there's freedom in Christ. We're not bound to those things. And I, I think that's a good point, but I don't think that's the main point. I think what the main point, in, point is, is followed up by here with what Christ is getting ready to say. And that is, The main point for why we do not listen to their judgment pertaining to these things. And these things are man-written rules and and even Old Testament laws that have now been elevated to the status of Christ or that level that this is what indicates our following of Christ when these things are not required. Because what's happening, I believe, as Paul is warning us, is to do not trade the substance for shadows. Do not trade the substance for shadows. This is where I, I really enjoy Paul. Um, Paul's a smart dude, all right? Uh, if you can put smart and dude in the same sentence. He's a smart dude, right? He, he, he okay. Colossians 2.17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul's saying what is at stake is the shadow versus the substance. If, and here's the deal. If you have died with Christ, been made alive with Christ, been delivered from every power that could threaten us, that's what we just talked about, then do not be intimidated by anyone who wants you to go back to the shadows. That's the picture of Paul's painting for us. So here's what's happening. Paul is not denigrating or, or putting down the Old Testament Scriptures. Paul obviously values them for what they are. I mean, Paul is a good Jew. 
he was he was a Jew among Jews, like he was the leader and or a leader and but he says that they are a shadow of the things to come. And here's what's awesome. The gospel announces that the substance of what is to come has come. It's here. The substance is here. So Paul wants us to see, though, the contrast of the shadow and the substance. And Paul, it's basically, it's very important that we live in the substantial, and here's a phrase, if you want to write something down, it is very important that we live in the substantial reality of Christ and to not exchange it for shadows. We're going to unpack that a little bit. So what is briefly stated here, and I'd encourage you to go through and read the chapters around this, this specific chapter, but what is briefly stated here becomes a really big deal in the book of Hebrews. Surprise, surprise. I mean, Hebrews is very entrenched with Old Testament theology and richness there. But in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. This is where, like, I really want to say Paul wrote Hebrews, right? I don't really want to say it. Just, we just don't know for sure. But uh, just the, the, anyways, just the language here. So the Hebrew author and Paul's concern is to persuade us or the readers to recognize that the substantial and solid realities of Christ, that they now possess in Christ, are not to be exchanged for the shadows. So Paul, here, let me, let me unpack it or kind of summarize like this for us. Paul is saying that, <coughs> that these Old Testament laws, these dietary laws and, and these, these calendars and the things here, it's not that those are bad. It's not that those were wrong. In fact, they're, they're good in, in their usefulness of what God ordained for them to be used for. But they were simply a shadow of what was to come. They're just a shadow which is not the reality of, right? It's just a shadow of what's to come. And what's to come is the reality of that they are a shadow of. Now if you study, I, I'm not huge into Greek philosophy and all that, but if you just read through Plato, uh, Plato's, particularly his, uh, I forget exactly what it's called, but basically it's his writing on the cave. And you understand that what's happened is the idea here, and I'm gonna, totally going to butcher this, but you know, the idea is they're, they're staring at the wall inside the cave and then there's a fire behind them and then the reality on the other or in between the fire and those staring at the wall so if you can imagine i'm staring at the wall and chains forced to see the wall and then behind me is someone the reality of someone else and then behind them is a fire or for us today we'd have spotlights right 
but for them it's a fire. And so what's happening is the light is being casted onto that wall, and in between me and the fire is the reality of someone else, and they are moving, casting a shadow on that wall. Well, his idea is that that shadow on that wall, I, I know no different, and that shadow is, my, is the reality for me. It's the reality for, because I don't see this. I can't see any of this behind me. All I can see is the shadows, and that becomes my reality. And what Paul is saying is that that, that Old Testament laws and those things that they want to bind you to are only shadows. They're not bad, but they're shadows. And the reality is behind you. The reality is Christ. And so what he's saying is, don't be deceived and exchange the reality of Christ and being found in Christ and being fulfilled in Christ and living for Christ. Don't exchange all of that for the non-reality. For the shadows of what was to come and is here now. That's what Paul's telling us. And it's easy for us. I don't want to get ahead of us, but I just want to say to us at this point, and it's not in my notes, but <laughs> it's easy, I think, a, a very good application for us is to exchange religious activity for the reality of Christ. Now, it's not the direct application of this text, but I think something just needs to be said. We can easily exchange the reality of Christ for religious activity. And then we're just as empty as anybody else just as longing as anything else. We're just as non-glorifying as anything else. Um, It's really hard, even in this moment, to think of Christ and being in Christ without thinking selfishly. Because we just get so much. Uh, I guess my confession is I'm struggling to think of words I didn't have planned in here to, uh, to express that what we are exchanging and to, 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 to convey that to you in a non-selfish way um, because we do get so much. But we're exchanging that. And I think that is, though, part of Paul's intent is that you're exchanging what it means to be found in Christ for this stuff. And the other thing Paul is saying, too, and we'll move on with this, Paul is saying that when you grab a hold of these shadows, you are essentially denying the reality. And think about that for us today. What about for us? Grab a hold of fulfillment, life, satisfaction, whatever, and we grab a hold of it someplace else. What are we saying? That the reality isn't good enough. And I want this over here. It's the same thing with sin. I mean, sin is we choosing something, thinking that it is more, thinking that it is more desirable than the reality of Christ. And Paul saying, "Don't be deceived." And then specifically here, so he's in the context of being deceived, and here he says, "Don't let the judgment." So don't let them push you essentially to do this. Don't listen to their pushing. You got Christ. That's what you need. You are in Christ. 
question for us today is, are, are we in Christ? Are you in Christ? Now, here's the deal. I want to say this too. Don't misunderstand. Paul is not speaking about the healthy fruit judging from other brothers or sisters in Christ. So let me make that qualification to us. This is not a brother coming to you and saying, look, we see this sin in your life and it's found in God. It's clearly against God's word and we just want to encourage you and push you. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about being pushed and judged into doing things that are not biblically required, particularly trading Christ and all that Christ offers for anything less, for something else. So, the next qualification that I want to give us this morning is that getting rid of the shadows does not guarantee the presence of substance. Getting rid of shadows does not guarantee the presence of substance. This, uh, uh, I'll, I'll paint this picture for us this way. Uh, when we planted a church in Kentucky, Connection Community Church, we, um, we did what's called like the launch model. And the launch model in church planting is you basically, uh, you gather up this big show, you send out lots of invitations, you do church differently, and people will come. So basically, you get rid of all of the traditional, irrelevant stuff, and people will come, and you'll grow, and you'll have this big church. You know, it's like putting miracle grow on it, and you're good to go. So you just get rid of all of this stuff, and you're good to go. And we, uh, we did, you know, what I would qualify as a big show, if you will, uh, for that community. We, we did $1,000 in gas gift cards for invites. $5 per card and gave those out. Other than our core people, part of our church, do you know how many visitors we had that first Sunday? Anyone want to guess? Someone guess. Throw out a number. Two. Four. Do I hear six? I got a six. I got a six. Got a six. Right. Thirty-five. Zero. 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 And the reality for us today in this context is, well, let me, let me just address that. That was a big learning situation, okay? Learned a lot. And we did not do it that way here. Uh, little tidbits and things, and we haven't done everything perfectly here, but one thing we didn't do uh, was launch, um, and we just started having church. Like we just started. Let me ha- let me rephrase that. We just started gathering to worship like this. We just added that element to our already gathered body of believers. So, with that in mind, let's let's move forward. Paul is saying just because we get rid of the shadows doesn't guarantee the presence of the substance. If I mean, this is absurd. So, getting rid of priests, getting rid of religious dress. Rituals, religious symbols, just to think that getting rid of those things, getting rid of pews, 
<coughs> like, dude, I used to be like, yeah, pews, they're terrible. Let's get padded chairs. And then, like, I, I was, my grandpa was telling me about a, a church that he was a part of and, and how they got rid of all their chairs to get pews. And I asked him the question, why? Like, what was wrong with the pews? I'd have kept the pews. Now, I mean, if they want to turn it into where they can take the chairs out and have, like, a gym or whatever, that's cool. But why did you get rid of the pews? Like, who cares? So we think we get rid of this tradition that somehow it's, we're going we're gonna to trade that for the substance. And Paul saying, no, we, we can't. And I want to encourage you to write this down. If we want to drive out the shadows, we must see. If you want to drive out the shadows, we must see the reality of a joyful some of you are going, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. A joyful, confident, thankful faith in Christ. We're not done yet. Keep your pen moving. If you want to drive out the shadows, we must see the reality of a joyful, confident, thankful faith in Christ. Keep going. All right, I'm seeing pens, I'm seeing smoke. All right. A love, so it's comma, a love... For the brothers, I think, anyways, English majors are a comma there, I think so. A love for the brothers and sisters, and the hope of heaven. The hope of heaven. Alright, let me repeat again. If we want to drive out the shadows... If we want the substance, we must see the reality of a joyful, confident, thankful faith in Christ. A love for the brothers and sisters and the hope of heaven. So even if we do not struggle with the shadows, I don't think that's the main point. The point that Paul is making once again in Colossians is that we need to live in the substantial reality that Christ is for us. I could end the sermon right there. We still got to keep going. We still got more verses. But Paul, the point, I think Paul is saying is that we need to live in the substantial reality that Christ is for us. And I don't mean that exclusively selfishly. I think Paul, what's cool is Paul's going to speak more about this in chapter 3. About how we, what we can do as a church to express the solid reality of our life in Christ. But we'll have to get to that in the future. So, in this verse, we have seen in verse 16, 17, and sermon part 1, uh, the first warning... Now we're going to, actually it's the second warning of Colossians. The first one, be not deceived. And then the second warning is this one, don't let anyone judge you. The third warning in Colossians is, do not be disqualified by anyone. Verse 18. And we're off to the race. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. All right, now this is where it gets really fun. Um, so just hang with me. If, uh, uh, yeah, this, this text I think is really challenging. Uh, 
But once again, the warning touches the common human problem of being subject to the opinions of others. The verb here has changed from past judgment to disqualify. And, but once again, the idea is a third-person imperative. And the feel is more like the suggestion that you do not measure up to the mark. You are a failure. At best, you are second-rate. That's the idea. Don't let them disqualify you. Basically, make you feel like a failure. Make you feel second-rate. Again, we're right in that same context of do not, let, do not let them pass judgment on you. Do not let them disqualify you. So the context is this. Paul has mentioned already hearing about the Colossians' firmness to their faith in Christ. We see this in chapter 1 and, and going forward. And He has heard about how they are living in that faith, loving one another with their hope set on heaven, Then he says to them, let no one make you feel like a failure. Let no one disqualify you. Now, don't misunderstand Paul. The reason you are not to allow yourself to be disqualified is not because you are awesome. It's not because you're cool and you got this whole thing down. It's not because you do good actions and, and, and you're, you're, you're cool and you know all of this. It's not that. And I, and I think that's our temptation today. Is, well, I can avoid this because I'm cool, because I got this down. And Paul's saying, no, don't let them disqualify, not because of what you've done, but because you are in Christ. Again, that's like Paul's phrase throughout Colossians. It's in Christ. Be found in Christ. You are in Christ. <coughs> So don't feel this way because you are in Christ. So the importance, though, of the teaching in 9 through 15, that's, that's that beautiful section on Christ. It says, For in Him the whole fullness of body dwells, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. You have been filled with Him, who is the head and the rule of authority. In Him you also circumcised. The circumcision is not made by hands, and so on and so forth. This beautiful picture. But all of that teaching, the importance... The important teaching of that lies behind the warnings of 16 and 18. Okay, so keep that in mind. That teaching about Christ and us being found in Christ lies behind 2.16 and 2.18. The purpose of the warnings is so that his readers, so that the Colossians, so that we do not forget the truth of what it means to be found in Christ. You see the correlation here. What it means to be found in Christ. That fullness of Christ. Let's, let's read part of that. Verse 19, or verse 9. And For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Remember, you died with Christ. By the circumcision of Christ. By the death of Christ. Christ's death was so effectively for us, it was our death. Verse 12. Having been buried with Him... In baptism, not water baptism. This is in the reality or the overwhelming experience of what happened to Christ. We were with Him. In which you were raised with Him. You were also raised with Him. You didn't just die with Him, but now you're raised with Him. And the faith that is powerfully working, uh, or th- through faith, in the powerful working of God, who has raised Him from the dead. 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. This is all God. God did this. You died with Christ. God did that. You're raised with Christ. God did that. God has made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us who who took care of the sin issue and the trespasses. God did that. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Who canceled the record of debt? God did that. What did he do with it? He nailed it to the cross. Did you and I walk up to that cross and and take the nails and, and put it? No, God took our sin and put it on the cross. Once again, God did that. And what's going on here? What's Paul saying? Do not do these things that would lead you to believe or understand that you are in some way adding to the work of Christ. Don't do it. That's deception. So don't let those people, and it's what we're looking at here in a second, that are super spiritual make you feel second rate because the same Jesus that supposedly saved them, the same God who did every part of the process, you did nothing. The same Jesus that did that for them is the same Jesus that did it for you. The fullness of that that is theirs is the fullness of that that is yours. There's no second rate here. Even here in our body, let me give you a practical example. It's easy to, for us to say, well, Matt, it's easy for you to evangelize because you're the pastor. You got this thing down. Hmm. The same Holy Spirit, the same being in Christ that is mine is yours. You are not second rate. You are not second in ability to do that. The same Holy Spirit. Guys, and here, here's the thing. Like, we can do that little cute little comparison there. The same Holy Spirit that led Jesus to the Christ, that empowered Christ all the way to the cross, that empowered His sinless life is the same Holy Spirit that you and I have. Hmm. All right, moving on. Don't misunderstand, Paul. This is what he's saying. We don't feel this way, disqualified, because... We are in Christ. And when here's the deal. When we feel disqualified, people, before we move on, when we feel disqualified, we feel second rate. We are pretending or acting as if Christ did not pay the price, as if Christ did not raise you to a new life, and as, as if Christ is not in authority over all and many other things. That's, that's what's going on in your mind, practically. Just like when you choose sin over Christ, you're saying this sin is more delightful than Jesus. You're spitting, I think, in his face. All right. The qualifications, or disqualifications, anyways, in this passage, can happen in different ways. But first, spirituality. Spirituality. And we're going to boogie through these. It says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up with, without reason by the sensuous mind. The disqualification experience, 
Paul had in mind is very specific. Let me ask you, have you ever compared yourself to someone who is seemingly much more spiritual? Anybody done that in here? I've done that all the time, all the time. Have you, have you gotten down about that, like depressed? Yeah. Paul says, don't respond like that. Don't respond like that. Are you or are you not in Christ? You know, so when I think, like for me, I look at like John Piper and I'm going, yeah, dang it. <laughs> no, the same being in Christ for him is the same that it is for me. Now, it doesn't mean, let me, let me qualify this a little further, it doesn't mean that I can't aspire to know God like He appears to know God. But when I get down about where God has brought me to and where I'm at, that, that's the issue. Because, it's, again, it's not about me. It's about what Christ did. It's about Him dying on the cross, not me. So what follows in this, in this verse, this disqualification, what follows is Paul's description of the kind of person he has in mind by whom you might be tempted to allow yourself to be disqualified. So he's kind of drawing the picture of this person that might make you feel disqualified. First of all, the humility. Colossians 2.18, the humility. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. This phrase could be translated literally, delighting in humility. Delighting in humility. If you have an NIV or TNIV, it says, actually says false humility. Basically, this is a superior kind of humility. It's a kind of self-denial. That you and I, in the face of that would not be able to help but feel inferior to. So, let me give you a definition of asceticism. Asceticism, now we can't superimpose the English definition of asceticism onto the Greek text here, because the Greek text is saying false humility or delighting in humility. But asceticism, this might help us a little bit, is severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgences, typically for religious reason. So again, we just can't take that English definition and go, that's what the Greek word means. And the Greek word simply means delighting in humility. But the picture being drawn here is this idea of self-discipline and avoidance of anything that would bring pleasure to you. Self-indulgence. Or of indulgences, typically for religious reasons. So this would be for religious reasons, period, in the context. So you feel second rate because you see these people. And that's what Paul's getting at. Don't let anyone disqualify you. The second characteristic is the worship. Again, language, and this is really weird, but the worship of angels. Like, what is he saying? Like, why would I ever want to be like that person who's worshiping angels? Why was, I mean, come on, Paul, like I can see this, like, yeah, I'm intimidated by their humility, or later on I'm intimidated by them seeing visions of God, but I wouldn't be intimidated by them wanting to worship Michelangelo, like he was a little bit of a sissy anyways, like, you know, like a girl, a boy dressed up as an angel, like, 
I, I'm not cool with worshiping that, right? Uh, all right, I know that gets into a lot of uh, misconceptions, but y'all let your minds dance around on that. So, uh, but I'm not tempted to worship angels. What, 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 are you, what are you saying, Paul? And we got to remember that the word angel can also simply mean messenger. So is he talking about worshiping the messenger? Is, is he talking about worshiping maybe uh, Epaphras or those guys? I mean, what, again, are, are we struggling with that? And So here's the deal. I don't think we need to press the meaning of this too much. Again, I think the understanding the context helps us understand the big picture of what Paul is trying to say. What I think Paul is trying to say is to not be intimidated by the kind of worship that would in some way be intimidating. I think it's simply, we can understand it there. If you want to dive into it a little deeper later, that's fine. Go for it. I did, and to no avail. Uh, so I think it's a, I think it's a hard, because it's hard to understand the language in this verse. But the picture, the context is people who make you feel disqualified. So these people have some sort of worship that is intense enough or is profound enough to make you feel intimidated. Next word, the experience. The experience. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on an asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions. Now, like I said when I first started, like I, I would have loved to skip over these verses because they're just really hard, but God said to go through it, so... Visions. What is he talking about? Uh, going in detail. Basically, Paul is talking about someone with a visionary experience and using that to intimidate. You're going, okay, dude, where is that relevant for me today? You know how many books and stuff are out there about visions and experiences? and It's on TV all over the place. If not, you live in a hole, okay? Like, it's out there. And it's some sort of like spirituality to be reached. I mean, that's how it's presented. I'm up here, and this is where everybody else wants to be. And then our, our society just thrives on that. And, and, and Paul, and it's almost lorded over people I've seen. I'll say another practical is the idea of prosperity is used as an intimidation factor or... I would say that in general about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Where I, because I've reached wealth, and I happen to believe in a person named G-O-D. And like, because of that, I'm able now to tell you what to do and you should listen to me. And you somehow feel intimidated by my spirituality that is evidenced by my wealth. And we see that on TV all the time. We see that celebrity, I think there's a danger of that in celebrity pastors. Um, that whole picture. Um, so again, I think this is very reality for us today. Many of us have met Christians who have had such dreams though, maybe specifically what Paul's talking about here, or voices, or heard, uh, had seen visions, inner convictions. Um, you know, on the one hand, though, understand that what Paul's talking about here, there's nothing biblical that says that these things cannot happen. Like visions and dreams, there's nothing biblical that says it cannot happen. And on the other hand, there's nothing biblical that says a person should experience such things in order to be a Christian. 
There's no, you have to have had a vision from God to be saved. There is none of that. So once again, let no one disqualify you. You know, be encouraged by their, you know, if it's health, wealth, prosperity, that's a different case. But if it's, if someone has had a vision they believe is from God, I mean, as long as it doesn't go against Scripture, I mean, be happy for them. Maybe God has spoken to them in a way that He's not chosen to speak to you. But don't let it make you feel second rate, is what Paul's saying. So, next point of this person, the superiority. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And this is what I love. Again, I love Paul. Um, Paul would not be a popular pastor today. Um, he would not write your best life now. Uh, he'd been fired a long time ago probably. But for all of the delighting and humility, the elevated worship, the claimed visionary experience going on, if that is what you encounter... The person is puffed up. That's what Paul is saying. They're arrogant. Now again, this is the context of Colossae. It doesn't necessarily mean every person you come into contact with that has a vision from God is arrogant or puffed up. But if they're using it to intimidate you, then there's an arrogance, a puffed up issue. But whether they're not, they are or not, don't let it. Don't let it disqualify you is what Paul is saying. And now Paul shatters their superiority with two things. He says it is without reason. <coughs> How would you like to do something and then someone come along and say, yeah, he did that and he had no reason to do that? Would you feel stupid? I'd feel stupid. Like, we put that wall up and there was no reason to do it. And now it's just stupid. And Paul's saying that they're feeling this way, the superiority that they're trying to lord over you is without reason. What he's saying is that they think they're humble, but they're not. They think they've had this, but they haven't. It's without reason. There is no justification for them to feel that way. The second, he says that sensuous mind is what puffs them up. Literally, the mind of the flesh What's amazing, I think, is Paul is saying that this person's sense of superiority comes entirely from his fleshly mind. It's not at all spiritual. So again, I want to draw the distinction. There are those around us who, maybe God is enlightened in a certain way. I'm not talking about some weird mystical thing, okay? But maybe they have have an excellent amount of humility and stuff. And they're not necessarily evil. I just want to make sure you see that they're not necessarily evil. But we still can't let that disqualify us, make, make, make us feel second rate. It can give us something to aspire to, something to work towards, something to encourage us to move forward with. So that's one category. Then the other category is those who are using this to lord over you. Don't let them do that. And those who are doing that are evil. That's what Paul's saying here. They have no reason to do that. So, there's a problem with the spirituality. And we are almost done. There's a problem with the spirituality. We have seen this pattern of warning and teaching. Warning and teaching. It's what's been going on in Colossians for the past number of verses. The warning of 18 is followed now by the teaching of 19. So what, is exact, what exactly is wrong then with this kind of spirituality? 
What's wrong with these people who are leading the spirituality and using it to intimidate you? First of all, Christ is the head. And what he says in verse 19 is that they are not holding fast to the head. Sorry, you are not, my, my bad, you are not holding fast to the head. You're holding fast to their spirituality. You're holding fast, once again, what are they holding fast to? The shadows. Something that's not the reality of Christ. Holding on to them or that person. Christ is the head of all rule and authority. Remember, we've, we've already established this. The body of which he is the head is the church. And the problem is that, according to Paul, is that the super spiritual person has attracted you to himself or to herself. So now no longer are you trying to be found in Christ. You're trying to be found in that person's spirituality and that person where they're at. And again, the whole purpose here, Paul is saying, it's you're in Christ. Be found in Christ. Christ is the head. Last point, Christ is the source of life, unity, and growth. Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Hmm. Now don't misunderstand, guys. Christian people should be concerned about their Christian lives, and the church should care about its unity. Okay? Like, this should be a concern for us. The warnings must not be taken, though, as an excuse for spiritual complacency. Like, Paul's not saying, just be okay with wherever you're at spiritually. That's why I keep qualifications of, like, let it, if it encourages you and pushes you back towards the cross, that's okay. But where the point where it disqualifies us makes us feel... Like, we're second, right? That's not what Paul would... That's not. Because our, our status is based upon Christ, not based upon our doings. So, we're not to respond to super spiritual intimidation with our kind of self-satisfaction. Like, I'm okay. I'm a Christian. I'm good to go. So, while we saw that we must be pushed back, while we, may, we must not be pushed back into the land of shadows, but instead... Live in the substance of Christ. If that's where we need to be found. The substance of Christ. Living in the substance is not acquired by simply ridding our lives of the shadows. Just because we get rid of those doesn't mean Christ then comes in. Likewise, we must not allow anyone to draw us from Christ into some super spirituality that does not have Him as the head. And we must not ride off, though, these spiritual experiences because... I mean, God could be using those. And then the reality of Christian living, growth, and stability matters for each of us. Matters. Well, Paul, Paul now points out that from Christ we get life, unity, and growth. And the whole body is, is the church. And the church, Christ is the source of the body's sustenance. Like what sustains us and is what keeps us and what grows us it's our breath our life and christ is the source of this body's unity as well as its growth and we are knit together 
by our shared dependence on Christ. Um, the super spirituality stuff can shatter our unity. Life, weaken the life and stunt the growth. But your faith in Christ is the source, power, and life force of everything that matters. Everything. So I think just to draw this big picture, I told you it's going to be a hard text to work through. Um, I think just what Paul is saying is, he's, he's just told us, told the Colossians how much God has, has worked in their lives, how much he has done in their lives, and what he's done to save them, what he's done to change them, what he's done ultimately to glorify himself. And he gives this warning, do not be deceived. And then what, is, what, what, what could be a deception for the Colossians? And the big picture is exchanging the shadows for the reality. Or exchanging the reality, sorry, for the shadows. Going to these man-made things instead of and turning from Christ. And then the risk is the same for us. We can turn from these man-made things, or turn from Christ and settle for man-made things. So with that in mind, let's pray. We're going to worship, uh, have the rest of our worship time, and give us a chance to respond and, and, um, and work through some of this maybe in your mind and in prayer. So let's pray. Father, Father God, thank you, for, um, thank you for your word. And Father, um, this is one of those texts that I, I'm afraid I walk away and go... Um, that I do it justice. And Father, it's in those, I guess in those moments that I'm reminded that it's, it's um, that your word will not return void. And Father, it's in this text I'm reminded that um, how frail we are intellectually. And Father, how much dependence there must be on the Holy Spirit to show us the text, to show us the revelation of Yourself so that we might understand it, so that we might live it, so that we might love it. And Father, I just pray that those promises in Your Word of it not returning void, Father, I pray that those would be true for us today. Father, um, in these moments as we worship You, Father, I just pray that you would take this word and lighten our hearts. Let us not trade religious experience for the reality of Christ. Let us not trade anything, or trade the reality of Christ for anything. Let's not trade Christ for religious experience. And Father, let us um, let's just worship you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with me?